0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler, filling in for Greg Store. And, Linnea, we're starting to get opinions from the court in what seems like a more normal pace that is a normal pace for the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: That we are. Uh, we actually had two opinion days this week. Ooh. Uh, yeah. We got decisions on Thursday. They gave us three. And then on Friday, we had uh, two rulings from the court. So that leaves us with 18 left to go before the court packs it in for the term. And that typically happens at the end of June. And we think they're going to be able to finally wrap it all up. I think so. Yeah. Uh, And it seems like the justices in true fashion are uh, saving the best for last. Um, So no big blockbusters really yet. Um, You know, we're still waiting for rulings on the constitutionality of using race as a factor in college admissions and, you know, for the court to decide the fate of President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. You know, the bulk of the decisions uh, we've gotten so far are in lesser known cases. Uh, The court on Friday, for example, issued a unanimous ruling in favor of a drug trafficker uh, who wanted his sentence for a gun-related charge to run concurrently with his sentence for a drug conspiracy charge. Uh, In that case, the court said that a ban on concurrent sentences in one section of the criminal code for drug-related gun crimes doesn't govern a sentence for a conviction under another section of the law. The court basically said, like, hey, it's up to judges to decide whether to let those sentences run consecutively or concurrently. So this gives that drug trafficker another chance to fight for a lesser time in prison. But we did get a ruling in a pretty big tribal case on Thursday that was somewhat surprising. Uh, the court upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act in a 7-2 decision in which Justice Thomas and Alito were in dissent.
0: Kimberly, can you remind listeners what that case is about? Sure, Lydia. So we did a deep dive episode on this, so be sure to go back and listen to that. So in the 1970s, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA as it's known, and it was passed in order to prevent the breakup of Indian families. And it was passed in response to findings that a large number of Indian children were being taken from their homes and placed with foster parents who had no connection to their tribe or any tribe in general. So the plaintiffs here were were a combination of couples who either attempted or actually did adopt an Indian child, and also the state of Texas. They raised a number of challenges to the law, including that it intruded on a core area typically left up to the states, that is adoption and family law, And that in doing so, it unlawfully commandeered state resources for a federal purpose. They also claimed that the law violated equal protection because it has placement preferences for adoption that puts non-tribal parents in line behind tribal ones.
1: Right. This was one of three cases where the idea of a colorblind law was being put forth by conservatives, um, the others being the Voting Rights Act case in which the justices rejected that view of that landmark legislation, um, as well as the affirmative action cases, which, like I said earlier, we're still waiting for. So what did the court say about the colorblind theory here?
0: Nothing really, actually. Um, so, <laughs> at least not most of the justices. So, you mentioned that this was a 77 to 2 opinion, and the majority here, which was written by Justice Barrett, said that neither the adopted parents nor the state had standing, that is, the authority to press those kinds of claims. So, the court didn't address them. It's a really technical issue. Only Justice Kavanaugh, in a separate concurring opinion, really discussed the merits of those equal protection claims, saying they raised serious concerns. So not a lot in this case. Of course, we did, um, in the VR case that we covered last week, talk about how the court really rejected that colorblind view. So um, not faring so well so far. But
1: yeah, the court rejected some of the claims on standing here. And we're still waiting for some big cases this term that could also turn on standing. Um, you know, I'm thinking about that student loan case. Uh, you know, so did the court's standing decision here tell us anything about how they might rule
0: on student loans? Yes, yeah, so I saw a, a few of this, um, you know, people's trying to read the, tea, read the tea leaves on social media, but I really don't think so, Lydia. So it's true that states are parties in both of those cases. But in the equal case, uh, what the court said was that what Texas was trying to do here was to sue to vindicate its citizens' equal protection rights, something the court has long said that states can't do when suing the federal government. But in the student loan cases, the state there, Missouri, is alleging that the state itself, through one of its agencies, will actually be harmed. So I think they're about different things. And I don't think we learned anything new about those student loan cases. So we'll just have to continue waiting on those.
1: Yeah, that was my thinking as well. So they didn't rule on equal
0: protection. um, But what did they decide? So the bulk of the ruling is on Congress's power to pass legislation that affects tribes and Native Americans. And the court's case law in this area has not been super clear, primarily um, this idea of where Congress's power to regulate tribes is located in the Constitution and really how far that reaches. Uh, The court didn't actually clear that up in this case. So super helpful. Um, But it does say that while Congress's power here is really broad, that it's not unlimited. Um, It just doesn't say what those limits are. Now, the two dissenters here, Justices Thomas and Alito, thought that ICWA wouldn't be on those limits. Uh, But again, they're in dissent. So Who cares? Yeah,
1: I noticed that (laughs) Justice Barrett in her majority decision really kind of went on to, you know, say how unclear things are Mm -hmm. and not definitive and how kind of like the case law is a little all over the place. You know, but we did get a massive concurrence here from Justice Gorsuch, and he was actually joined um, by Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, um, as well as Justice Sonia Sonia Sotomayor. Now, Justice Gorsuch has um, had an unbroken record of siding with tribes while on the court. Is that right, Kimberly? Um, he seems—I saw a lot on social media—people praising uh, Justice Gorsuch, even though this majority decision came from Justice Barrett.
0: Right. So Justice Gorsuch um, really has had broad support from tribes. Even even going back to his confirmation hearing, I think I wrote about um, the support that he was getting from them. And, you know, that's because he comes from the Tenth Circuit, which really has a heavier caseload of tribal cases. So he had a pretty clear record of siding with tribes, and he certainly continued that on the Supreme Court. So also decided Thursday was a bankruptcy dispute involving uh, a tribe in which Gorsuch was the only justice to side with the tribe. So eight mm-hmm. one there. So um, really, really um, on brand for him. It was interesting to me that the decision, as you mentioned, was written by Justice Barrett. Uh, First, because, I mean, this is a pretty high-profile case for a relatively junior justice, and yet we have the chief justice assigning it to her. Um, So that was notable. Second, because I've been watching Justice Barrett in these tribal issues. She's sort of ruled both for and against tribes in her time on the court. And, you know, we still have one more tribal case outstanding, a really big water case um, involving the Navajo Nation, and she seems to be, like, the deciding justice there. So this may be an area in the future where she kind of uh, the court goes where Justice Barrett goes on on tribal issues.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that this was, you know, Justice Barrett's first time, you know, writing a majority in a major case like this. So it'll be really interesting to see, you know, where or what else we get from her and where she goes. Well, Kimberly, that uh, does it for, you know, the opinions that we got and in terms of substance. But is there anything we can read from the tea leaves or or anything that you're following in terms of who's been in alliance
0: with who on these cases? Yeah, well, I continue to find it really fascinating um, which justices have been in the majority the most this term. Uh, it's consistently been that, you know, Justice Sotomayor, Justice Jackson have really been up there. They're also been joined um, in the top by Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh and Kagan not the five that we think would be in the majority the most and actually the justices in the majority the least have been consistently all-term justices Thomas and Alito so I mean there are a lot of cases still to go and some pretty big ones so that could definitely flip but at the same time we have gotten some Some notable cases, VRA, the Indian Child Welfare Act case. So, you know, maybe these won't be so lopsided um, as as I expected them to be in you know when we started this term. But I will say that you know these are sort of the way I calculate these stats are are really based on like technically whether they're in the majority in the minority. So you know, Justice Sotomayor's ninety seven percent of the majority includes her concurring opinion in Sackett, which you know is more like a dissent than it is, but still notable. I think overall, just to know notice, um, you know, how these cases are shaping out. And I, I sort of wonder if it has to do with the kinds of cases that this court is taking,
1: yeah, that's definitely something that I've noticed as well with Justice uh, Gorsuch and uh, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson have really been uh, joining forces here. You see them teaming up time and time again on concurring opinions. They did so in that Equal case as well. Um, again, they were joined by uh, Justice Sotomayor on that one. But, you know, we've seen just the two of them join together with no one else. Um, and so, you know, it's really interesting to see these different alliances emerge based on mm-hmm. the cases. And, you know, for, for Justices Gorsuch and, uh, and Jackson, it seems to be that they seem to be teaming up when they want to push back against how much power uh, state and federal governments uh, have.
0: Yeah, looking out for the little guys together. Who would have thought? <laughs> I mean, I wonder. I sort of wondered to myself if Justice Gorsuch was like permanently scarred by all the talk of that like trucker during his confirmation hearing. And now it's like I gotta look for the little guy. Where's the little guy? Oh, I always think of that case. Yeah, <laughs> because like he, he got a lot of he got a, he got a really hard time for. I think that guy had
1: to like walk in the cold, or like no, I think he left his truck, but otherwise would have had to sit in the truck with it and maybe freeze to death. And so, you know, Justice Gorsuch had, had said that he should have stayed with the with the. Truck truck on that one
2: it is absurd to say this company is in its rights to fire him because he made the choice of possibly dying from freezing to death or causing other people to die possibly by driving an unsafe vehicle that's absurd so
1: yeah yeah maybe he's feeling a little bit of that burn still and trying to redeem himself Uh, The court announced uh, that it will release more opinions on
0: Thursday. And as I mentioned at the top of our show, the court has 18 cases left to decide. Right. And uh, we know that they have opinions coming down on Thursday because the marshal announced it at the end of opinion announcements on Friday. But that does not mean we might only have them on Thursday. We could still get guidance from the court that they're going to be issuing opinions on Friday, too. So watch out for that and all the other Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. I felt like I was in jail every day when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here.
2: My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses.
1: Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative.
2: We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit.
1: I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair. How can she get away with this?
2: And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses keep their companies afloat.
0: I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules, and you decide if you want
1: to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry.
2: Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule?
1: Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition.
2: There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition.
1: Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets.
2: Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.